Lesson number two, your best disciple. This is so critical, and I've, I've taught this kind of just in general preaching that your children ought to be your disciple. You're, that's where you start. Husbands, your wife is your first disciple, and husbands have every right to disciple their wife. That's what Corinthians tells us, that men have a, the authority to lead about a sister or a wife, and when you lead someone about, you're going to disciple them. Also, we know Ephesians 5 says, wives, submit to your husbands. And so that all reflects discipleship. But once you're married and you have children, or even if you're a single parent with children, you've got to realize that you have to disciple your children. Uh, Look at our first verse here. We're going to talk about discipleship in the gospel setting to begin with, but we want to start off with this verse. This is one of my most favorite verses in the whole Bible. Ezekiel 16, 44. Behold, everyone that uses Proverbs shall use this proverb against you. That's because Israel is in trouble, but it could be used for you saying, as is the mother, so is her daughter. Only they would only, that's a negative thing if your child is a brat because you're a brat. It's a positive proverb if your child is great because you're great. So the proverb itself is neutral, but Ezekiel says they'll use this proverb against you to reflect your rebellion. But the proverb ought to be able to be used for you to reflect your discipleship and your willingness to serve God. So as is the mother, so is her daughter. And so that was in terms of Israel being rebellious and uh, because she wouldn't repent of her sin, she had learned that rebellion from her forefathers, etc. So that's what we want to keep in mind. That's the role of discipleship is to reproduce exactly who you are in your disciple. So in the biblical context, and I've done a more research this week on this, refreshing something I had looked at probably two or three years ago, maybe four years ago now, and the Lord just kept prompting me to go back and find this DVD I have and to watch it again to kind of get some things out of it. I want to talk about for the first section, Galilean discipleship. That is discipleship that arose and was maintained around Galilee in the time of Jesus Christ. In the biblical context, a disciple is someone who is trained and mentored by a master, also called a rabbi. We're familiar with that word because Jesus was called rabbi, rabboni, over and over again through the gospels. The disciple-rabbi relationship was developed by the Jews upon returning from Babylon as a way to promote the study of the Torah and the preservation of their faith. And so, ironically enough, by the time Jesus Christ comes on the scene, even though the, the whole rabbi-disciple social interaction thing is established, it is really preserved in Galilee, which is a, a, a section of town on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. They were called Galileans. And it was in that area in the first century of Judea, that families would move and villages were built around a rabbi and a local synagogue. And these villages and communities were maybe five to 700, no more than a thousand. And so that community was all about their rabbi. They lived there and uh, they had a synagogue and then they would build a school onto the synagogue. And so every Sabbath or Saturday, they would go to synagogue to sit under the rabbis. Now, this was something the Israelites had developed upon return from Babylon because they wanted everybody to know the law, not just once a year at the Day of Atonement, which was kind of what went in before. This was something they developed to ensure they never went back into slavery. And so it became a cultural phenomenon of sorts. They did it so that everybody would be well-versed in the scriptures. So these rabbis, were, they weren't Pharisees, they weren't Sadducees, they were just masters of the word what we would call pastors, they arose, they led a synagogue and and communities would form around that 
which is a really neat way to realize that 2,000 years ago, folks were living around the word of God. And so in the discipleship, you had the, you had the rabbi, they'd go to Sabbath, uh, the synagogue on Sabbath, he'd read the word, he'd expound the word, he'd teach them from the law, he'd give them the interpretations of the day and teach them how to walk with Jehovah. But then there were always a section of students or, or churchgoers, if we'd say churchgoers, who said, this is not enough, we want to be trained more. So then they would go into the school, which was attached to the synagogue. And so they would sit at the feet of the rabbi and he would teach them more, not just as like a Sunday morning service as we would call it, but more in-depth teaching in a school, a synagogue school. From that group, they were usually younger people, there were always a handful that excelled who said, this is not enough. It's not enough for me to be a fisherman. It's not enough for me to be a carpenter. It's not enough for me to be any of these things. I want to be just like my rabbi. And so what they did after years of schooling is they said, we want to follow you. We want to be your disciple. And the rabbi would receive them. And so it was in Galilee that this cultural thing was very entrenched. In fact, because they were so adamant about God and church and the word, the rest of Israel looked down their nose at them and thought they were ignorant because they just lived for the word of God. And you see that, that uh, they would mock them on the day of Pentecost. Are these not Galileans? And yet we hear them speak in all of our tongues, the wonders of God. God, Lord Jesus, selected all Galileans except for Judas. So it was no accident that he went to this fishing village where they understood discipleship. And ironically enough, all the guys he picked had been rejected by the other rabbis, otherwise they would have been disciples. So he picked at all the rejects and said, come follow me. And they quit because that, that, that was what their culture said. You have, if you're good, you become a disciple. These guys are fishing, which indicates no rabbi wanted them. So Jesus even goes on to say, you have not chosen me, which was the form of the day. He said, but I chose you. This is what we're building up to. So jumping in here now, let's look at this. The first century master-disciple relationship required the following qualities. Number one, the disciple was not just interested in learning from their master. They wanted to be just like their master. Now, we could stop and just teach generally for today. Most Christians are not disciples. They want to learn from their master, Jesus, not the local pastor, but Jesus. They want to learn from him. They want to learn about him, but they don't want to be like him. Because if we really wanted to be like Jesus Christ, we would be different. But maybe we just haven't been taught that the role of a disciple is to be just like Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember also when they rebuked and after Jesus was ascended and they scourged the disciples, it says they took note that these men had been with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Why? They had become just like him. They knew Jesus' ministry very well, but these disciples had so walked with him and become true disciples, even the Pharisees and those that whipped him, tortured him, they said, these are just like little Jesuses over here, which is the whole purpose of discipleship. So not enough just to learn from them or learn about them. A disciple wants to be just like their master. You even see that, unfortunately, in secular things. Kids want to be just like their football player. Folks go to certain, I know this from my training, they go to certain martial arts schools because they want to be just like the sensei or just like the sifu. Or I, every once in a while, I still meet people who are two generations removed from Bruce Lee, and they brag on that. You know, my, I, I was under this instructor, 
And if you know who that instructor is, you know that guy trained directly with Bruce Lee, which is a big deal that this guy, this guy I'm talking to, he's only one person removed from Bruce Lee's personal training, which is a big deal. That's how it's supposed to be with Jesus Christ. I was discipled by Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Or I was discipled by this man who everybody knew walked with God. And when we're done, I'll be just like that man, even as Paul said, follow me as I follow the Lord. And even as Paul said, the things that you heard and have learned and seen in me do. And then he goes on and says, and commit them to faithful men. We see this process of discipleship repeat itself. It's not enough to come to church and be full of doctrine in your head. You have to be just like Jesus. Number two, it says the disciple lived with their master 24-7. Now that's what those communities in Galilee were all about. They lived around their synagogue. But when you became a disciple and you left everything to follow a rabbi, you live with them everywhere you went. The master, point number three, the master prepared their disciples for every aspect of life. And point number four, the master taught their disciples how to interact in all facets of life. And of course, we could probably add the fifth point, that the master trained them up in the fullness of the word of God. In first century Galilee, of course, we're talking about the Torah, the Old Testament. So after the discipleship process was complete, the disciples were walking, talking, thinking carbon copies of their master. We've talked about in times past, you know, Timothy was just like a miniature Paul. Titus, you know, he was like a miniature Paul. The, the 11 apostles, Matthias added afterwards, the 12 apostles, you know, they were walking, talking carbon copies of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though they still had individual personalities. All of this is building towards children because this is just like children. They don't want to just learn from you. They want to be like mommy. They, they, they live with you 24-7. And your job is to train them for every possible scenario in life. And your job is to teach them how to interact in all facets of life. And we say things like that. We don't talk like that inside. We don't run like that inside. We don't throw things inside. We don't act like that in church. Shh, honey, this is a funeral. We don't act like that in funerals. They're living with you 24-7. And when you're done with your kids, they will be carbon copies of you. And that's why I have said, even before I was a parent, if you want to see what your Christian walk is like, look at your children. That's insulting at times, but it's also the truth every time. You want to see what your rebellion looks like, though you can constrain it, just look at your kids because they haven't learned to hide it or constrain it, but yet you're still permitting it. There's no way to shake that. There's no way to say, well, you know, we did nothing wrong. Nobody can say we did nothing wrong. There's no perfect parent. There's only getting better kind of parenting. And then there's the parent that says, God, have mercy on us. That's not to beat any of us up. We weren't raised by perfect parents, but we turned out okay. And we're still turning out. That's why we come to church. To this end, we can easily see the parallels between masters and disciples and parent and children. Therefore, children should, by default, be our best disciples. Children should, by default, be our best disciples. What we must ask ourselves is, will we disciple our children in the gospel or after the world? That's a good way to ask, we have to ask ourselves. One of the things I've been saying over and over again is that really it just takes one lazy parent or two lazy parents to curse their whole progeny, their whole last name to hell. And you can be born again. We were talking about this the other day with some folks. You can truly be born again and know the gospel and go to heaven, but because you're just halfway lazy in parenting 
or in the gospel standard, your kids are not ever held to the same standard you were held to. It just, we understand that. We see that in our culture. It just takes one lazy parent to back off their child and that kid takes the wrong choice and goes to hell and takes all the grandbabies with them. That's why we have to be strict about this thing. That's why I'm, uh, now that I'm a parent and soon to be a parent times two, I'm even more adamant about it because I see it firsthand. And so we have to be serious about this. Now, if you have grown children, we're not here to condemn you. That's not what we're talking about. But you're not the only parent in the room or in the church or who will listen to these CDs in the future. So don't take this message as, well, he's, he's beating me up for what I didn't do right. I'm not even thinking about your kids that are grown and gone. I'm thinking about my baby, my baby that'll be here. I'm thinking about all the kids that we have in little tots and toddlers. I'm thinking about all of us who are still parenting. So to that end, I would say, don't be selfish like that. If you were merciful and full of compassion, you'd say, please tell them what I did wrong. In fact, a couple months ago, when we started preparing for these lessons, I, I asked all the parents, if you would give me what you did wrong so I can compile it into one giant lesson that we call the mistakes of a spirit-filled parent, or the regrets, the regrets of a spirit-filled parent. That's one of our lessons in this, where we're gonna go through about 25 or 30 things that people gave to me, just honest, because those folks are saying, pastor, my kids are grown, and boy, we messed up. Please tell them, don't do this. Please tell them, don't do that. This is what we did. I think if you really want the kingdom to expand, you're always preaching your mistakes, so others don't have to repeat it. Amen? All right. Two types of discipleship. Something or someone is always going to be training your child. Children are sponges. They're going to suck up something everywhere they go. You know it with your kids. I know it with my kids. They're always repeating something, absorbing something, observing something. Something's always breathing on them. They're like clothes. Clothes just always take on the aroma of where they're at whether it's El Tapatio or Mama Rosa's or Starbucks or Grandma or the old car or the smoker. Kids are like that. Whether it be television, video games, friends, church, or you, something is always investing in your child's life and heart. The course of a child's life will be set by their trainer. So we have to ask ourselves, who's supposed to train them? Well, we know who that is. Us. But if you are lazy or neglectful or just, you, you, you just need a Calgon getaway every 35 minutes, nothing's going to train your child like it should have been. It's going to end up something else is going to take over because you're going to get frustrated. You're always going to think you deserve another break. If God didn't, God, it's almost like kids come with the grace package to handle them. Now, if you have trouble with a lot of kids, quit having them. Really, just stop having them. The Lord doesn't prescribe how many kids to have. It's up to you. Some folks are absolutely insane with how many kids they think they can handle because I would like to tell them you can't handle the one. And you think you need seven more? So something's got to train up your child and the Lord intends for it to be you and mama or you and daddy. Here's a verse, Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So this is what we call an imperative in the English language. It's an understood you. You train up the child. Not school system, not grandma and grandpa, not sister, 
not brother. You and daddy, you and mommy, you, they're your kids. You train them up. Grandparents make horrible parents. Grandparents make horrible parents because something changes in grandparents when they're older. Somebody, I think, I don't know, somebody told me, uh, there was a little t-shirt that said, uh, grandchildren are God's reward for not killing your kids. <laughs> but every grandparent I've ever spoken to, <laughs> they says, I never understood grandkids to now that I have them. And yeah, it's totally different. And all you want to do is spoil them. And I noticed it with my parents. My parents let our kids get away with murder. And if I'd even blinked at murder, I'd have been beaten beyond the recognition of a man and put in an attic chamber and fed bread and water through an air vent. And that was only because dad didn't have time to deal with me in any other severe way. And now we have to stay, we have to discipline dad so he disciplines our kid. And same with the other grandbabies. And so grandparents make horrible parents because they're not supposed to be parents. They're grandparents. There is that right to spoil and to, to hug on. And then you say, okay, mom and dad, go home. You've done your damage. It's gonna take me all afternoon to fix this. Amen. God wants you to train up your children. Reverend Ken Blunt says, God wants you to train them because he gave the baby to you. And to that end, and let me carefully say this, we in America have believed this lie that women should be working all the time. Now, I'm not against women working. But that is a Western thing. It's part of the feminist revival that brought in the Jezebel lesbian spirit and marketed it as awesome. And so because of that, mamas who are designed to raise children are not able to. Now, we're not against women working, not at all. But even every year about January, the nation does a survey and realizes it's actually usually, usually financially cheaper for mamas to stay at home. I don't know what the percentage is, but I just throw that out there because sometimes as Americans, we get under the pressure that we have to work. If we're going to be worth anything as women in America, we've got to work a job and have, but, but see that then the mama still wants to have babies. So you end up giving it to a daycare and I'm not against daycare. I was raised in a daycare. My parents both work. My parents both have big careers. And so we were latchkey kids, which meant you came home and you had either a latch or a key to get in because nobody was there to raise you. I turned out okay. My brother, I'm not sure about. We're still praying for him. He, he has a therapist. But 50 out of 50% ain't bad. No, we turned out all right. So I'm not diminishing that, but sometimes you got to stop and tell folks, you don't have to have a career if you don't want to. Don't listen to the American lie that tells women, unless you burn your bra, look like a man and have a career, you're worth nothing. And even with the whole Yahoo, the, the vice president, the president CEO of Yahoo, she said, I'm going to have babies and I'm putting them in my office. And what are you going to do about it? And still run Yahoo Corporation. So she just kind of wanted the best of both worlds and stirred up a big controversy with it. I just put that out there because sometimes you don't think you can do that. But if you crunch the numbers, it actually might be cheaper if you stayed at home and did what you wanted to do anyway, which is take care of your babies. Some people, even honestly, even nowadays, and we're not against college, but some folks go to college because America tells them you have to. What if God doesn't want you to go to college? What if he wants you to do something else? We get under all this pressure that may or may not be the will of God for our life, so we march to their drum rather than God's. That's my only point. Passive discipleship. Our section here is two types of discipleship. Number one, passive discipleship. Just by lying, or excuse me, living with us, our children are being trained. Our day-to-day -day lifestyle trains our children from what we eat 
to how we dress, to what we like, our mere existence is training up and imparting into our children priorities, mores, values, and behavior. Just by being around us, our kids are being trained. Just by being around us, they learn to talk like us, and they learn to dress like us, and they learn to eat the food we eat if you're strict with your children. Now, again, chicken nuggets and mac and cheese are the victor's meal. That's what you feed kids who run the household. There's nothing wrong with chicken nuggets and mac and cheese once a month, but every meal, no. Be forewarned that passive discipleship always leads to the world discipling your child. The discipleship God is expecting us to do as parents is not a passive discipleship. Just because you have kids doesn't mean you're parents. Just because you can procreate doesn't mean you're gonna be a good parent. You're a good parent when you want to be and you put forth all the effort and you do the work. Children are an investment and they take a lot of time and energy. Very quiet. It almost discourages me, but I'm a little tougher than that. So let's look at some verses here. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings his mama to shame. A child left to his own upbringing, to his own devices, will bring his mama to shame. Proverbs 29, 21 in the NIV, I really like this. As servant, you could also put child, but a servant pampered from youth will turn out to be insolent, showing a rude and arrogant lack of respect. Notice the Bible says when you pamper people under your authority, you make them useless. You make them insolent. In the New Living Translation, it says a pampered, a servant pampered from childhood will become a rebel. If you want to know why your children turned out to be rebels if you're grown, it's because according to the Bible, you pampered them. Pampering isn't, doesn't mean you neglect spanking. You can, you can spank a child and still pamper a child. You can pamper a child by treating them like your equal. Children are not your equal. We cannot deceive them. If you, part of, and we'll get into this in future lessons, part of discipleship and disciplining your child is to teach them how to always submit their will to somebody else. All a rebel is is someone who never wants to submit their will. When you pamper a child, you teach them that they're equal to you and therefore can negotiate with you. Children ought to be able to see dad angry. Not all the time. We're not talking about being a caveman, but they ought to see the wrath of mom and they ought to see the wrath of dad because when they grow up to become strong Christians, they'll see the wrath of God and they'll also see his goodness. But if all you ever do is negotiate with your children and this monotone kind of psychology thing, that's pampering. And your child will think they always have a, a equal foot upon which to negotiate with any scenario and they'll always end up becoming hellions. And so they need to see, the Bible says of the king, he can scatter evil with his eyes. That means the king has showed anger before. And the Bible doesn't put down the fact that he can scatter anger with his eyes. But they've seen the anger of the king before and yet they've learned not to cross it. And apparently in those scenarios, you, they would say something and the king, all he'd have to do is look. And everybody would say, well, we need a, that was a bad idea. You could just tell. But if, if you're always negotiating, we don't negotiate with kids. That's pampering. And the Bible says when you do that, you'll raise up a rebel. You and I, we don't negotiate with God. 
When we're in trouble, we're in trouble. When we're blessed, we're blessed. When we're obedient, we're obedient. And we're disobedient, we're rebels. And God doesn't negotiate with us. He says, do this, and then he resists us when we don't. We've got to get that working in our parenting ability. The New English translation says, if someone pampers his servant from youth, he will be a weakling in the end. I like those are three awesome ways of saying how we are to not raise our kids. Though the, though the subject is a servant, it also points out that from a childhood. So we can apply that. I claim that my kids are gonna serve me in the ministry. That's the example the Lord set before me with Dr. Barclay and his children. So I claim it for me. The Lord gave me a pastor as a role model. So I claim it. So if my kids are gonna serve me, then I'm training them to serve me right now. And right now, honestly, even in the church, we use my daughter to run errands. Take this to mommy. Take this to Miss Ginger. And she does it. And she loves to do it. She doesn't get to negotiate either. Amen. So let's see, what does active discipleship look like? God wants us to be proactive in our child's development. Active, active, active. Spirit, soul, and body. Active discipleship requires you as a parent to have a vision for your child's life. So if you still have children at home, you have to have a vision for them. What's your vision for them for this school year? What's your vision? If they're, if they're just toddlers, what's your vision for them? You know, you have to have a vision of uh, going from, uh, from breast milk or formula to, to cereal, and then from cereal to solids. And then you have to have a vision, potty training, and then dressing. And even the doctor, when you go for the checkups, the doctor wants to know how they're doing. And the doctor's judging you and your child for developmental coordination. And they ask the questions. Do they help you dress them? Do they talk? Do they make eye? And the doctor checks up on all this because the doctor has a vision for your kid and he has checkpoints on those charts and he's judging your child to make sure there's no issues, no developmental issues. Well, that's just the doctor who sees 50 kids a day. How come he has a vision for our kids and sometimes Christians don't? And that's just natural biology. What about developing our children spiritually? What about developing our children soulishly? That's our job too. This vision should be based on the Bible's standard and truth. Biblical discipleship results in the disciple reflecting God's light in nature. When you're done discipling, your child will reflect God's light and nature. If you train up the child, they will not depart. If somebody else trains up the child, there's no promise. They may have to get saved later in life. They may have to come back later in life. Something went amiss. Amen. That's painful sometimes, but we're not going to sit there and say, oh, 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 no, you were a perfect parent. Nobody's a perfect parent. No. But that's why we never stop praying. Even if they've grown up to be prodigals, we still pray for them. That's Biblically, if they are prodigals, that's the only thing we're permitted to do for them. We're not permitted to chase them. Did you see the prodigal in Luke 15 chasing? Did you see him sending telegrams? Foxograms, you know, where you tie it to a fox and the fox chases? No carrier pigeons, messengers. He didn't use any form of communication. He cut the kid off and just prayed. And every day he looked for him. We don't even know how long it was. Your, act, your child's active discipleship will result in them looking more and more like Jesus Christ. Proverbs 13, 24 in the New English. The one who spares his rod hates his child. Notice, the, I would say this, the rod's not always spanking. And obviously in America, we need to teach more spanking. 
But sometimes we think spanking's all the answer is. That's not it either, because you can spank and be in sin. Sometimes uh, the rod of correction is also your tongue saying, you do not talk to me that way. You do it again, I will wash your mouth out with soap. I will spank your bottom. Sometimes it's instruction. They've got to see that anger. They got to know, I just crossed mama. I just crossed daddy. But if they can sit in your lap and negotiate with you, somebody is a horrible ambassador of Jesus Christ because we don't negotiate with terrorists. But one who loves his child is diligent in disciplining him. New Living Translation says, those who love their children care enough to discipline them. I like that. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. So what do we need to be teaching our children? Here's just a simple list. Maybe we can throw it in our parenting repertoire and expand it. And maybe we can judge ourselves and realize I probably haven't been doing the best here or I need to work on that. My wife and I, we're always studying and praying. And when we pray with our kid, both of our girls now every night, we also pray that the Lord would help us be the best parents ever. We also pray that the Lord would make our parenting technique something worth following. Because somebody's got to lead the way. Might as well be us. You know, might as well be you. I don't know if I'll have as many kids as some of you, so you might as well be the best parent at four kids. I could never, you know, you may be a better parent at four than I could ever be at four, but I'm going to be a good parent with two or however many we decide to have. So wherever you're at, you got to say, Lord, you, you've got to help me. Teach me from the word. Teach me through preaching. Teach me through prayer the best way to disciple and train up my kids because I will not lose them to the world, the flesh, or the devil. It's not even an option. I claim my kids are going to serve the kingdom forever. Amen. Below is the simple list of things our children need or should be learning from us. No particular order, but we'll just start off here. Who God is and how we relate to him. That's what our children should be learning from us. And what our relationship is to him. What is our relationship to God? They should learn that from you. They don't learn, they're not to learn that from the Sunday school teacher. They're not to learn that in Royal Rangers or Missionettes. They're to learn that from mom and dad. Most of the kids we run into in the jails that came to our church, their parents never did. Number two, what God declares to be right and wrong. That's something else our children need to learn from us. What God declares to be right and wrong. There are moral absolutes. We are to teach them. It's absolutely wrong to lie. It's absolutely wrong to steal the tithe. It's absolutely wrong to sleep around. It's absolutely wrong to be a homosexual. It's absolutely wrong to worship demons. It's absolutely wrong to, to, to. That's what they're supposed to learn from us. They're learning morals and values from us. But whatever we believe is gonna automatically be in them. And we cannot be the hypocrite that says, do as I say, not as I do. Your living preaches louder than your mouth. And like uh, Reverend Ray Bent shared with us one time, his dad used to tell him, what you're saying, what you're doing, screams so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. What you're doing yells so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. And so your children should see you pray. They should see you pray together as mommy and daddy. They should see you reverencing the presence of God and lifting your hands. There's not a reason why every child in our church shouldn't come down to the altars during pre-service prayer. I don't see why not. We have, we have two-year-olds that do that now, not just mine. We have lots of two-year-olds that do it now. It's not a hard thing. Monkey see, monkey do. 
It's one of the most powerful testimonies we have as a church when visitors come and they see our corporate prayer, pre-service prayer, and they see our little children walking around. It absolutely blows their mind. Every one of them comments on it to me in private. To see those little children walking around with their hands lifted up and their eyes closed, I've never seen anything like that. I know. It's an awesome testimony that our children are being raised at the altar. What the Bible is, we're to teach our children what the Bible is and how we are to esteem it. We start that off in, in bed babies. They hug their Bible. And we don't throw our Bible down. We love our Bible. So now that anything in our household, the Lidster, if it's leather and goldie, she thinks it's a Bible. Even if it's a concordance or if it's some other kind of fancy literary work, is that daddy's Bible? No, that's not a Bible, but it sure looks like one. She knows it. She knows a Bible more than she knows any other book. She knows it. It ought to be our testimony. How a child, they ought to be learning how a child interacts and relates to their parents and all authority figures. That comes back to you do not allow your children to negotiate and you always side with authority against your children. To start off with, now you might have to do some investigation, but you got to teach them how to relate to authority because they'll have to the rest of their life. And so children who are rebellious, they learned it at some point. You can't go blame the devil for everything. Devils come because the door gets open. Who taught them to leave the door open? Who taught them the door was even permitted to be opened? Who even taught them there was a door there? No, you don't even teach them there's a doorknob. You just put the cupboard in front of it. There's no way to get out of this thing. We serve God. So you can't blame the devil for everything. He comes when there's open doors. You teach your children to resist the devil. You teach them how to, them to, how to submit to authority, starting with mom and dad. One of the things I heard Nancy Dufresne say one time, she was preaching. She, that was Dr. Ed, that's Dr. Ed Dufresne's widow. She pastors the church there in California. And she said, you pastors have to teach your church how to honor you, which is a hard thing for a pastor to do. And you could hear everybody go, oh. She said, you teach your kids to honor you. If you don't teach your kids to honor you, who's going to? Nobody. And she said, so if you don't teach your people how to honor you as their pastor, who's going to? Well, there's a problem right there because number one, parents don't teach their kids to honor them. Therefore, pastors will probably never teach their people to honor them because we have become an honorless society. So you've got to teach your children that submitting to authority keeps them alive and that we have respect for all those that are in authority. But if you don't have that respect for people in authority, your child won't either. Monkey see, monkey do. We're to teach them how we are to act in life with friends, at school, church, public. You know, your children should be taught we don't act like monkeys in the shopping cart. We don't act like monkeys in the sanctuary. You know, we stay on the little two and three-year-olds in here all the time. We don't run in this place. We don't jump off the altar. We're teaching them how to be reverential. Catholics master this. They absolutely know reverence and honor. We could learn a lot from them. And even when those, uh, we've used it before, even when Catholics, if they grow up to, to be total heathen, when they go to the local Catholic church, they're totally honorable and reverential. And they respect the house of God because they were taught it as little children. Now they might hate Sister Mary Catherine with all their heart because she whipped them with a ruler on their knuckles, but they know how to reverence the house of God and the priest and the nuns. And you don't, you don't sin against them because they're holy people but they learn that as children. 
We're to teach them what our purpose in life is. We gotta teach our kids, we serve Jesus. We serve Jesus. That's all they should hear. We serve Jesus. Well, what can I be when I grow up? Anything Jesus wants you to be. Where can I go to school? Anywhere Jesus wants you to go to school. How will I do it? By the power of God. Mommy and daddy are here to help and we'll, we'll believe God for the money, but we're gonna serve Jesus. You have to teach them. Otherwise, Hannah Montana will teach them what their purpose in life is. And I hate to say, see, I told you so, but I prophesied that thing six years ago. I said, watch this train wreck. And I was even criticized in my own church for being critical of Hannah Montana. If you couldn't see that train wreck happening, you were blind. Bodily care. You ought to teach your children how to take care of their bodies. There's a thing called BO. What is it? Well, you have lots of it. This is how we bathe. Make sure you get your armpits. There's a thing called halitosis. What's that? Your stinky dragon breath. You have calluses on your teeth, scales. Did you eat fish? Because I think I see scales on your teeth. Butter teeth. We have an in-house dentist. Make an appointment. Teach your children. I know this because I deal with our youth leaders. Not for their halitosis, because we have youth who don't know bodily hygiene or it hasn't been drilled in them enough. And we honestly, we have to teach our children to bathe, when you potty train, you teach them to wipe their tootie or whatever you call it and how to flush the, the, the potty. You have to train them and train them and train them and train them and train them. Otherwise, they'll become the kids that get made fun of. Then that brings in a whole psychological thing we have to fix. If you would just be the parent and teach them, brush your teeth, wash behind their ears, let's cut your fingernails, your hiney stinks. Boy, you smell like a monkey. My dad would always say, boy, you smell like a billy goat. I didn't even know what a billy goat was till I was probably in my 20s. But I knew it didn't smell good. And if I smelled like it, it was time to hop in the shower. <laughs> if you're not training your kids this, uh, you're neglecting your duties. I know children are inconvenienced, but you should have stopped at one then. But now that you got two or three or four or 20, you're responsible. Somebody told me, oh, pastor, it's easy. Once you have a couple kids, they help take care of the younger ones. I don't want my older kids taking care of my younger ones. I want to take care of my kids. Or is that maybe just escapism? The more you have, the easier it gets. Well, your 15-year-old isn't fully discipled yet. You're going to trust them to disciple the one-year-old? The government doesn't even trust them to drive. Now, don't go kidding yourself thinking, well, my child's mature for their age. Says who? What standard? It's not what we're saying. Yeah. All right, yeah, I don't know what I expected out of these messages. Brother Hagin said, you always offend people when you preach on kids. So I get to do this for, we may just make this a five-week session. Take a breather and have a part two. Stewardship. Anybody hear anything about stewardship? You ought to teach your kids stewardship, etc. If we do not disciple our children and teach them the proper biblical perspective to the previous scenarios, the world will gladly disciple them and give them their version of the truth. Someone or something is always going to be discipling your child. Make sure it is you or someone you approve of, like a mentor or a Sunday school teacher or a youth leader that only gets them for an hour or two a week. How to actively disciple your child. So now that we taught you what you should be doing, I guess I should give you how to actively disciple your child. Sounds like some child discipling going on out there right now. To understand discipleship, we need look any further, need not look any further than the ultimate disciple maker, should say, 
Jesus Christ, the ultimate disciple maker. The Lord's method of discipleship is second to none and it should be our model. Jesus Christ was perfect in everything he did, including discipleship. So here are seven things that we ought to incorporate in our discipling of our children. Number one, spend lots of time with them. Careers are the number one way to lose your child. Careers are the number one way to lose your kids. Too busy working for Pharaoh. I can't tell you how, many, how much of that I've dealt with in my life. Dealt with that pastoring. Dealt with that with friends. Our verse says, and he ordained 12 that they should be raised by the nanny. And he ordained 12 that they should be mentored by someone else. And he ordained 12 that they should be mentored by John the Baptist. No, he ordained 12 that they should be with him. Mark three. Number two, include them in what you are doing. Come ye after me and I will make you to become fishers of men. So you see, he said, come ye after me. Include them in what you're doing. Children just want to be with you anyway. That's what Miss uh, Lynette Hagen told me. I said, how did your dad succeed in making you such a tremendous woman of God? She said, I caught my daddy's vision. We were always doing something together. And I said right there in my heart, I said, that's going to be me and my girls. They're going to be involved in everything I do. And I'm going to be involved in everything they do. And they're going to catch my vision and I will never lose them. You have to write the vision and make it plain. Number three, pray with your children on a regular basis, teaching them to pray. The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. So you have to pray with your children and teach them how to pray. I love it that we, we teach the little thoughts, a little song. They can at least get into it. I know it's not going to move heaven and earth, but it's a way to start praying. And it lets them know that this is what we do before meals. We pray. Number four, patiently instruct them. Mark 4 says, and he began again, again, to teach by the sea. This is where a lot of Americans lose it with their kids. They won't go over it again and again and again. We, are, we have to fight the boredom. Sometimes we can get bored with our kids and we've got to resist that. Children are children. They don't get it right the first time. You've got to give it to them again and again. Jesus instructed again. Number five, correct them. You cannot be afraid of correcting them. But he turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit ye are of, Luke 9, 55. So some folks, again, they don't want to rebuke. They want to, uh, uh, they want to negotiate. I don't negotiate with my daughter. Now, when she's doing well, we'll negotiate what snack, pistachios or crackers. I, I, I want M&Ms. No, ma'am. M&Ms. M I want M&Ms. No, pistachios or crackers. Uh, ice cream, no. Pistachios or M&M or uh, crackers. You only get one choice. There's only two there. You don't negotiate. You will always fail your child teaching them they're on equal playing field with you. I'm 37. I'm not on the equal playing field with my natural dad. And I pastor a church. It's just not proper. I've watched many parents fail by making their kids their equal. Because you, you treat it long enough, you, you, you'll begin to believe your own lie that the rules don't apply to them. All right, whatever. I've just watched it and cleaned it up. Correct them. 
Number six, allow them to do what you've taught them. You have to give them opportunity to practice. And he called unto him 12, and he began to send them forth two by two. So he taught and taught and taught. Then he selected 12, and he said, now go do it. Now go do it. Let them help. Let them help do whatever they want to do. Let, let them help. If your kid shows interest in helping you with something, go buy, buy toy versions of it so they can just help and feel important. The worst thing you can do as a parent is let television raise your children. I understand that temptation very well, but that's not what kids need. They need adult interaction. And number seven, encourage them. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, Jesus said. You've also got to always encourage them. You see a very full, balanced, full, very full sheet of information and things you have to do. And that's what Jesus Christ did to his disciples. It isn't all playtime. It isn't always instruction time. Sometimes it's prayer time. Sometimes it's just be with me time. Sometimes it's getting in trouble time. Sometimes it's being of good cheer time. It's very full. Never forget that, uh, that only an expert disciple can, in turn, produce expert disciples. So if you're not an expert disciple, you will not produce one in your child. You will only produce what you are in your child multiplied. If you're squirrely, you'll produce it multiplied in your kid. If you're rebellious, you'll produce it multiplied in your kid. But if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will produce that multiplied in your child. Amen? Very somber, quiet message. Some of you, your kids are gone. You should be cheering me on for these younger folks. That's good preaching, pastor. Help them. Don't let them go our route. We got weirdos in our family. Pray for me, preacher. Maybe it's still just a little painful. Father, I thank you for helping us with these lessons. Father, bless these folks with adult children and grandchildren. Father, let them be able to pray for them and even get stuff out of these lessons so they can pray them effectively, even have entrance into their own adult children's lives. Father, we don't want to remember the past. We don't beat ourselves up over what we did wrong, but we have to prepare the future generation and even this new generation of parents like me. We've got to do better so that you can have a kingdom of children, a generation of kids ready to take the stage when they're old enough and you trust them. Bless these folks, prosper them in Jesus' name. Amen.